Okay, First Peter is where we are this morning. We want to flip over there. First Peter chapter 1, it'll work. So last week, uh, we, we kind of looked at the, the practical exhortations that Peter gave to these Christians who were beginning to suffer for their faith and uh, starting to experience kind of the hostility and, and the, um, the exclusion or ostracism that comes when you're aligned with Jesus and his teachings. And, uh, and some of us, you know, are starting to experience some of the same things. So this is, this is timely for us, or at least we're starting to see the writing on the wall of it, of it, of it happening. So he instructs them to be ready in their minds for the changing times, the new normal that they're beginning to experience and to be prepared for the opportunities that God will bring along with that because he does that. He encourages them to, rather than to conform or compromise their beliefs and their morality, that they would conduct themselves differently than those around them. He stresses the importance for them to live distinctively holy as representatives of God um, while, they're, while they're here during this time of exile. And as we talked about last week, being holy means to be set apart. So our God is holy, 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 which means that he's really, really, really set apart. Christians are made holy by his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And then we are called to live holy by that same righteousness. So I don't know if you know it or not, but God has set you apart for a special purpose. And it's pretty incredible to think about when you think about the old, the temple and, and how they would have certain things in there that were, they were holy. They were, they were consecrated. They were set apart for special purposes and only for those things. That's kind of how we are as his children. He's made us holy. He set us apart for something special. And Peter's going to try to motivate us by, by explaining this to us, uh, motivate us towards holy conduct. You know, motivation is an interesting thing. People are motivated by very different, different things. Like some people are motivated by praises. Some people are motivated by prizes. <laughs> and some people are, quite frankly, are just motivated by the fear of the consequences that could occur, Right? Each one of our kids, when uh, Joy and I raised, you know, five mostly good kids, uh, sometimes, <laughs> but each one of them required different motivations. You know, we had some that were so eager to please us that, you know, literally uh, they, they were almost happy to obey. They just wanted to please us. So to hear the words, you know, well done, good and faithful child uh, meant the world to them. So an attaboy or a gold star was all they needed. That was it. Praise was all it took. Some weren't motivated by praise at all, but the promise of reward sure got their attention, right? Hey, if you get this done, chocolate is in your future. Now, some people are already giving me thumbs up. So, you know, still some of you today, still like, you know, if you guys sit through the service today, you go home and have some chocolate. That'll be your reward. Candy always worked pretty well. And, and you know, this was the kind of thing where you do this in the store before, you know, you, okay, we're going to go in. And if you behave when we leave, Ice cream is in your future. And so they would be like, okay, I'm motivated to do this. <laughs> and some weren't swayed by praises or prizes at all. They needed a different kind of motivation. Right? It took a little more persuasion with some of them. Solitary confinement usually did the trick, <laughs> right? That, that's the idea of like, if you don't finally get these things done that we've told you to do, you're never going to see your, you know, your friends again or the light of day or whatever. It, you know. No, they weren't empty promises, but, but the idea was there's going to be a consequence and that's what would motivate them. And the interesting thing is that our heavenly father uses 
some of these same motivations with his kids too. In this morning's passage, Peter's going to give us motivation to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And he's going to stress that how we live matters. He's going to give us two things to consider. The first one is this. One day we will stand before God as our judge. The second one, he's going to remind us of the high price that was paid for our ransom. So I'm going to start out by reading our, our text from last week so that we get a better understanding of the context, and then we'll jump into what we're going to be looking at this week. So uh, last week was 13 through 16, today is 17 through 19. So 1 Peter 1, 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. Uh, sorry, knowing that you, no, there it is. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Um, Father, I pray that, that today your word would just wash over your people and that it would, it would cause us, Lord, motivate us to live differently uh, for your glory and, and for, for our good in Jesus' name. So in verse 17, Paul, or Paul, I'm going to do this all day long because I'm going to quote Paul and Peter, but this is Peter, I know that. Uh, Peter refers to God as father and as judge. I think most of us really like the fact that we get to call God our father. Uh, That's just a remarkable privilege. But we're probably less excited to call him our judge. In fact, some of you are probably saying, uh, wait just a minute here. You know, I thought that when I became a Christian, all that judgment stuff went away, and I know my Bible. Well, first I would say, hey, you know, I don't appreciate your tone. (laughs) You know, back off. Uh, And then I would say, second, as long as we're imagining, this is, you know. Then I would say, second, have you ever considered the following verses? Hebrews 9.27, for instance, tells us that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 explains further, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The Bible makes it clear that we will all stand before God to give an account of how we have lived, what we've said, and how we've used the talents that he's given us. All of those things are in the Bible. And here's the thing. God is fully aware of everything you have ever done. Some of you just got motivated. (laughs) See how that works? (laughs) Now, some of you got motivated because you want to do better, because you want to hear his voice say, well done, attaboy, gold star. You want to hear that, right? And some of you got motivated because you realize I'm going to have to stand and answer to a holy God for the way I've been conducting myself. And both are excellent motivations. Now, I want to make something absolutely clear here. If we are Christians, 
If we have trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his work on the cross for us, if that's what we trust in for our salvation, if we are Christians, we do not have to worry about suffering God's punishment for our sin because Jesus suffered that for us. I want to be absolutely clear. Jesus completely satisfied God's wrath, satisfied that for us if we trust in him as our Savior. That part is done. We will never face that kind of judgment. So what we're talking about here is the Christian's work will be judged, not the Christian himself. There's a big difference there. Some of you can go. But we will still have to give an account for how we live. First Corinthians three explains this. Well, Uh, the first thing that it teaches us is that Jesus established the foundation for our salvation and that that foundation is indestructible. Okay, we can't add to what he's accomplished for us on the cross, but how we, how we, uh, what we do from there, how we build does matter. So 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 11, it says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, those are our works, each one's work will become manifest or made known, For the day, and that's talking about the day of the Lord, Jesus' return, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Okay, now it's clear that our salvation is not at stake. He will be saved. It says that this has to do with rewards and loss. But notice that it doesn't explain what the loss is. It's just unspecified loss. I don't like the, the sound of it, though, still. It's like, what does this mean? What does loss mean? And there's not really a clear answer here. I think we're all familiar with the concept of suffering loss. Every one of us has, has, has gone through something like that. And so my guess is that this has to do with a period of absolute sorrow and regret that we wasted our life, that we chose to live in a way that offended him and didn't glorify him. Um, and that we could have just done so much more for our King. But notice that I said a period of regret and sorrow, because I can't imagine eternity, you know, in heaven, with just that continual regret and sorrow, that would be kind of, doesn't sound like heaven, does it? Fortunately, we have Revelation 21, 4 through 5, that says this. At some point, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. However bad the loss is, it will not be crippling to us forever. But I hope that I don't have to experience it at all. The thought of it, just any disappointment when I stand there really bothers me. And that's why Peter tells us to conduct ourselves with fear during the time of our exile. Again, that might sound strange to some of you. Fear, right? What, what What are you talking about? Why would Peter say that we should conduct ourselves with fear? 
Well, the Bible teaches us that fear is the beginning of wisdom. (laughs) Because what this means is that when we get a right perspective of God and a right perspective of man, wisdom begins to occur. Picture Isaiah when he was in the presence of God. Remember what he said? Woe to me, for I am undone. I am doomed. He stood before the presence of God and, and he felt so inadequate. He understood who God was and his God is this white, hot, holy God. And, and I am a worm. So fear here means kind of this awe-inducing reverence that we should have as we're in this time of, of walking with, with this amazing God. And I got to say, I really appreciate passages like this. You might say, you know, you're weird, Brent. No, I really do. I need these. And the reason that I need them so much is because I understand grace. I, I understand grace so well. I know that when Jesus said it is finished, that, that he meant it, that all the work was done in regards to my salvation. And my salvation is secure because of it. And because I understand grace, as much as I hate to admit it, sometimes I presume upon that grace. And I don't take my sin as seriously as I should. You know, it's that idea that, well, Jesus took care of that. This doesn't matter that much. But one day I'm going to have to stand before him and look him in the face. And what am I going to say? Sorry, I didn't think my sin was that big a deal. As I look at the holes in his hands and his feet. I don't want to be there. I don't want to do that. Sin is our enemy, not our friend. And I wish that we believed that more than we do. Someone once said, if sin had immediate consequences, there would be fewer takers. (laughs) And I believe that, you know, we don't, we don't take it seriously. We just kind of think, I don't know if you're like me, but I do this thing with all, all kinds of different, you know, things that when it's in the immediate, the right here and now thing, I just act like that's not a big deal. You know, we do this with, with money, with food. You know, this is how this happens. You know, you get, it's like, no, it's no big deal. What's one more burrito? No, you'll start to look that way. Oh, uh, you know, sorry. I always go, I always go that way. Finances. You know what? Who cares? Let's just throw caution to the wind. We'll charge that. Right. Relationships. You know, go talk to somebody who's been unfaithful to their spouse. Go talk to somebody who's been through a divorce. And you're going to find out that it's, it, 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 it's not easy. It's hard. It's like a bomb going off sometimes in somebody's life. But we don't really think about what's down the path. We don't think about the consequences of it in the here and now. There's an old saying that stuck with me over the years. I don't know who said it, but it says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. So Paul, I'm right this time, says in 2 Corinthians 6, it's, this is where Paul and Peter agree. Sometimes Peter would say, like, I don't know what Paul, but he's hard to understand. They agree on this one, at least. They agree on everything because they're both apostles and they wrote the Bible and it's the Holy Spirit. But you know what I mean? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, God is saying this, Peter's quote, or Paul's quoting, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, 
bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's a comforting verse to me. And it just reminds me that God is so long-suffering with us. He's so patient with us, and he loves us so much. Now, Peter says something else relating to God's judgment that's worth mentioning just because of the times we're living in. And and you may have seen it there, but it says that God judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And and the reason I point that out is because we're living in a time when that doesn't happen very much anymore. Uh, Judgments are based in our society, um, you know, just kind of in a biased way that unfairly favor one side over the other, regardless of what's real or what's true. And it's happening on, on all sides of things. Individual accountability is avoided at all costs. I know I'm starting to sound like an old man now, but it's like, it's weird to me that, that, that like that's not happening anymore. You know, it's become normal to judge a person based on the designated group that they're a part of rather than an individual. So people are divided up between oppressors and victims, regardless of what they've done or how they've lived. And victims can do no wrong and oppressors can only do wrong. And it's a very strange way to to kind of do things. But God doesn't judge that way. That, that That doesn't fly in his court. He doesn't look at appearances and he doesn't play favorites. He will judge each of us impartially according to the things that each one of us has done. So there won't be any excuses to hide behind. Uh, no one can point to, you know, say the devil made me do it or it was that woman you gave me. You know, that's a popular one I've heard. Uh, not me. It was Adam. Uh, you know, it wasn't my fault. You know, we're not going to be able to do that. God knows. And we will we will uh, we'll have to give an accurate accounting. OK, so the first motivation to be holy is that we all stand before God one day as our judge and give an account. And now we come to motivation number two in this passage, where Peter explains the high price that was paid for our ransom. Verse 18, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Uh, We're all familiar with the concept of a ransom, right? We've seen the movies, right? Fill a briefcase, with, with a bunch of money, you know, go to the bridge at 5 o'clock, put it in the dumpster, come alone, don't call the cops. They always call the cops, right? They're always like snipers everywhere. But that's the idea here. So I, this is how I picture this in my mind. <laughs> I picture God getting a note saying, we've got Brent Maxwell. If you want him back, this is what it's going to cost. And I then picture God saying, how much? And at that point, I would imagine God would say, no way. That's way too much. That guy's worthless. You can have him. That would have made sense to me for God to have done that. And I don't say that as a self-effacing way. I just know who I am and I understand who God is. And that's just, that's, that's what makes sense. But that's not what he did. He paid the price of my ransom By sending Jesus to die on the cross for me, for you. You know, Francis Chan wrote in his book, Crazy Love, this statement. The fact that a holy, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, merciful, fair, and just God loves you is nothing short of astonishing. (laughs) And I resonate with that. It is astonishing. It's crazy love. 
The disparity of God paying such a high price for the sinner continues, as Peter points out what our net worth was before God saved us. Peter earlier mentioned this incredible inheritance that we're going to get one day as Christians when Christ returns, but he he mentions another inheritance here in verse 18, the one we got from our forefathers. And you're like, oh, I got an inheritance from my forefathers? Don't get too excited about it. It ain't great, all right? It's like pocket fuzz would have been better. (laughs) You're like, what did they leave us? Well, According to what Peter says here, they left us their futile ways, okay, their empty way of life. It's like, thank you for that. They left us a system of conduct that leads us away from God towards spiritual bankruptcy. Now, there's some discussion among the commentators about who Peter's referring to here. Is he talking about, you know, who are these forefathers? Are these, is this Gentiles or is this Jews? And I would say, yes, I think it's both. Because both of them left their offspring a worthless inheritance, even though they thought it was very valuable. You know, Proverbs fourteen twelve says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but, but the end of it leads to death. And, and that's what we're dealing with here. Because if you think about what the Gentiles pursued and what they thought was important, they pursued things like higher education, which is a good thing, uh, financial wealth, philosophy, culture, the arts, you know, the finer things. And they left those pursuits as a pattern, as a model for their children to follow after. The Jews pursued holiness, which again seems like a good thing, but, but not in the way that we're talking about today. They were doing it by their own good works. They were, they were, they were trying to like keep, keep the law, follow the ceremonies, follow the religious things, um, and find a way to kind of make their way to God in their own righteousness. And that's the, the, the inheritance they left to their children. These are the same things that people earnestly pursue today. They try to better themselves through these things by experiencing the world more and, and learning more and, and, and you know, trying to be a better person and all these things. But Peter calls them futile and worthless. They appear to have value, but ultimately they ultimately don't because they don't lead us to God. Did you guys ever um, remember the Antiques Roadshow? Have you guys ever watched that, or am I the only weird one? It's on, P, it's on like PBS, which is not a show that I should probably be excited about, but I like that show. And the whole idea is they bring in these experts, they travel around to different towns, and you go home and you find you know, this treasure that you have, and you bring it to the Antiques Roadshow, and you bring it before one of the experts, and they tell you what it's worth. And of course, the hope is that you know, I've got a Tiffany lamp that is worth, you know, I'm going to retire when, I, you know, when they get done today. But for me, the, the best part of this show, and again, I'm weird, and you guys kind of know this already, it's that guy that, that bought this, this thing that he thinks is like he got it. He stole it for a price that nobody would believe, and this thing is so incredibly valuable. These guys are going to be like happy that I came today. They're going to stand in awe of me, and they're going to be like, wow, you are the greatest. You know? And so they walk in with this thing, and they put it on the table like, you're welcome, you know? Tell me how much it's worth. You know, I only paid 5000 for this thing, but we all know it's way, you know, worth way more than that. And they look at it and they say, oh, sorry, this is a knockoff. You know, you bought a doorstop and it's worth maybe a fraction of what you paid for it. I don't know why I find satisfaction in that, but, but it's just like, I also like it when they find out it's something really cool. I'm not completely weird, but, but this is kind of what Peter's describing for us here. Our forefathers thought they were leaving us something that would benefit us but it's completely worthless. You know, and it's, it's the idea of self-gratification, self-promotion, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. Those are the things that we're talking about here. They're all based in pride. And they completely exclude the God who made us. 
Nothing good there. So there are two inheritance, inheritances at play here. An empty way of life, right? Or an abundant life. An abundant life is what we get through Christ. One comes from following the path of our forefathers. We might call that the wide and easy path. And, and the other comes from placing our faith in the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And we might call that the narrow or difficult path. In verse 19, Peter invokes Passover imagery to describe Jesus as our Passover lamb. Verse 19 says that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. If you're not familiar with Passover, it commemorates the time when God ransomed his people uh, from their slavery in the land of Egypt. Remember, he commanded Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh was disinclined to acquiesce, right? Means no. And so God sent the destroyer to visit every home. But he told his people that if you'll sacrifice a lamb without blemish or spot and take the blood of that innocent animal and put it on the doorposts of your home, the destroyer will pass over your house and you will be spared. They were literally saved by the blood of the lamb. And of course, this all points forward to Jesus who became that precious lamb for us. His blood was shed and applied to you so that you could live. He willingly paid that price for you. You know, Peter, Peter mentioned silver and gold in this passage. They represent the most expensive things here on earth, and they weren't valuable enough to ransom us. It took something infinitely more valuable. God had to send his son. Knowing that such a high price was paid by God for you, should stir you. It should motivate you to live a life that pleases him, not because you have to, but because you get to. How we live matters. It matters to God. It matters to the people in this room. And it matters to the people outside of this place. First Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. A day is coming when we will stand before our amazing God and hopefully hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. But until that day arrives, be motivated by what we've looked at in our passage today, not out of duty, but out of delight, right? Not because you have to please God. He's, he's pleased with you because of Christ. Now, now you just get to go and worship and live a life of obedience and worship to him. There's a song we sing um, sometimes called All I Have is Christ. And, and I love this song. I love the lyrics to this song uh, because it, one, it fits this passage quite well, but really it's because it's just my story written down. The first time, you're, you're going to have a hard time believing this, but the first time I heard it, I just wept. I couldn't sing. I just looked at the lyrics and just wept. And now I'm going to try to read it. This is what could go wrong. <laughs> I, it's going to work out perfectly, I think. But here we go. I remember Milt reading it at the other building once too, because he was struck by the same thing. Sorry. Now that ain't going to help me any. <laughs> All right. Let's make it, let's make it harder. Here it is. I once was lost in darkest night yet thought I knew the way the sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross 
And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. And here's his conclusion. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use this ransomed life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be my only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Father, thank you for uh, helping me to get through that first. Uh, Thank you so much, Lord, for your grace. Uh, Thank you that you've paid such a high price so that we could have life. And we know that it came at the expense of Jesus, Lord. And and we know who we are and we know who you are and it makes no sense. But we thank you for loving us with such a crazy love, for giving us such abundant life and and for giving us an inheritance that we have to look forward to. Father, use that to motivate each one of us um, to live a life just like it talks about in Romans where we just offer ourselves as a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to you. Father, thank you for the people in this room and for the people that are tuned in right now. Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus, that doesn't know the goodness of being purchased by you and, and, and brought into your kingdom, I pray that today would be the day when they would just fall on their knees and cry out to you for mercy, that they would ask for forgiveness for their sins and that they would turn to you and believe that what Jesus did on the cross, his death, his substitutionary death for them, his burial and his, and his resurrection, Lord, to new life would, would motivate them, Father, that would cause them to just cry out to you for salvation. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.